As you are turning there, I want to mention just uh, briefly and in review of where we've been two years ago, January of 2010, we, we began our study in the book of Genesis with the intention of studying very deeply the truths of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, because these are the most attacked chapters in all of the Bible especially because of the foundation of secularism and the foundation of uh, science today being, of course, evolutionary. But as we've entered into these last few chapters, we have a better picture, really, of how we all got where we... uh, where we were to be and how we got to where we are today. And here in chapter 10, we've been dealing for the last three studies on, or the last two studies on on the table of nations. Today's part three. Last time we looked at the line and the descendants of Japheth, the son of Noah. Found very interesting uh, things that we'll talk about a little bit later, just kind of in review. Today we're going to deal with the descendants of Ham, another son of Noah. Here in verses 6 to 14 will be our foundational reading as we get into this study today. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim and Phut and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ra'amah and Sabtecha, and the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh, and the city of uh, city Rehoboth and Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala. The same is a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anamim, and Lehabim and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim and Kazluhim, out of whom came Philistim, the Philistines, as it were. And Kaf Torim. Give me just a second to get my tongue back in order. <laughs> ah, good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wondrous word. How we pray that you would anoint us and bless us with your spirit to understand your word today. Give us wisdom, Lord, to understand that what we read and what we see is true. And what we're seeing is the foundation, truly, of all nations. Nations, Lord, that you care for. And that you have desired for us as believers to go into them. To bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation. So we thank you, Lord, for this foundational study. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great challenges in studying the table of nations, which we find here in Genesis chapter 10 is realizing uh, the need to keep the research from getting too complicated. Uh, It's complicated enough to deal with so many names that have yet to become household monikers. As I've made reference previously, I I don't think any of us are ready to name our firstborn son Mizraim or Ludim, Anamim, Lechabim or Naftuhim, right? I don't think any of you have chosen those names yet for any of your kids. But tracing every descendant of Shem, Ham, and and, and Japheth would be a a monumental task, if if not nearly an impossible one. So it would do us well to stay relatively and and, and simply general in our approach. But as a point of of review, Noah, Noah had died, and so Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has begun a new section in history where the revelation of God's will and God's word will eventually be limited to the descendants of Shem who will later become 
the Hebrew people. This is where we're heading to at the end of this particular chapter. But before Moses does that, he's going to give us information about the descendants of Japheth and Ham. Now, in our last study in this chapter, we focused uh, our attention on the descendants of Japheth and uh, where they would generally settle in the world. So as quick review here, Japheth or or the Indo-European peoples moved eastward into certain parts of Persia and India, uh, westward and northward into Europe and parts of Crimea and Russia, and quite possibly from there migrating uh, to, um, in time, to the Americas through the Aleutians and into North, Central, and South America. That's not only those of Japheth, but uh, we can learn later that it also probably happened in the descendants of Ham as well. Uh, But as also mentioned last time, by the time that we discover these races and nations, the majority of them had no knowledge of the God who had created them. So they gained and possessed the world, but at the loss of their souls. And this is one reason why we have to understand why God's called us into all nations to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But these are the three things that we studied last time that are important for us to understand that as these nations go out away from from Ararat, away from the place where the ark landed, where uh, Noah came off of the ark and and offered sacrifices unto the Lord, where Shem, Ham, and Japheth and and their wives went forth from. This is the the very birth, actually, the rebirth, if you will, of, of the human race after the flood. Three things that happened in time was that, first of all, they failed to hold fast the knowledge of God. Secondly, they failed to follow after God. And thirdly, they failed to teach their descendants about God. Now, this would also apply for the most part to the next group to be examined, which are the descendants of Ham. Uh, But before we press on, let's remember a couple of points. Mankind was scattered and separated so that they might seek the Lord. And without any doubt, if we study the scriptures, we realize that this was a part of the plan and purpose of God. They were driven away and divided so that God might draw them. We learn that from the scriptures in, in, in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And he says to them, as he does in verse 26 of Acts 17... Speaking of God, that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord. You see, this is a part of of, of that bigger plan of God. He scattered and separated so that we might seek him. We were driven away and, 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 uh, and divided so that God would draw us. Paul goes on to say that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Let me add one more thing. It is interesting that in this chapter, if you count up all the names of the descendants of Noah's children, you come up with 70 names that form distinct people groups. Seventy names. Thirty nations come from Ham. Twenty-six come from Shem. And fourteen come from Japheth. That adds up to seventy. It's an important number in Scripture. It's important in the Old Testament. We find it in the book of of, of Exodus when when Moses is is called uh, uh, by his father-in-law Jethro actually before the Lord and the Lord commands him to go forth and bring 70 men in to help him with the ministrations of the people. But uh, in the New Testament, uh, we see in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus also does the same thing. Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 3, it says that after these things the Lord appointed other 70 also, other than the 12 of course, but he appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And the point is that Jesus clearly had in mind that his followers should be reaching all the nations. 
We have 70 people groups mentioned here in the Old Testament. Jesus sends out 70 to give us a, a, an impact of this. See, I mean, just, just think about it. And granted, there are thousands of people groups nowadays. But all of those groups still originated from Noah and his three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. So we still keep coming back to the family of Noah. Now let's look at Ham's descendants. I'm going to read these verses again to you and and then read on down through verse 20. And that will be the last time I read all these names to you again. The sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ra'amah, and Sabtecha, and the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala. The same is a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lechabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kazluhim, out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtorim. And Canaan begat Sidon or Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Heth was the, was the ancestor of the Hittites. And the Jebusite, the Jebusites were that uh, tribe of people that uh, settled in and around Jerusalem. Uh, and the uh, Amorite, and the Girgasite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite. I'll speak of the Sinites more a little later. And the Arvadite, and the Zemorite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar and to Gaza. Some of you probably recognize the word Gaza. We hear it in the news uh, often because of its uh, location uh, and uh, there near Israel, or right next to Israel. As thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lasha, these are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations." Now, generally speaking, again, the descendants of Ham would populate the area, or the areas, I should say, areas of North Africa, as well as much of Africa later on, as they would spread out from North Africa. They were also populating parts of the Middle East, and interestingly enough, the Far East. And these are the descendants of Ham. Uh, Beginning closer to home, so to speak, Cush's family would be divided very early into two branches. Uh, Some would settle in the area of Babylon, which, of course, was Nimrod. Uh, Babylon being the area that today we know of as Iraq. Uh, And the others uh, would settle in what is known today as Ethiopia. So then some of, uh, of uh, Cush's family then went into deeper into the area of, uh, of Africa or the uh, continent of Africa, as it were. Uh, Mizraim uh, is the ancestor of the Egyptians. And it is a very important name uh, in Scripture, Mizraim, because it is the customary name in the Word of God for Egypt. Oftentimes, if you see the name Mizraim, it's talking about Egypt. But uh, consider, if you will, for just a moment, Psalm 105, verse 23, because here it, uh, it mentions another name given to Egypt. It says in verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. So Egypt was also considered or called the land of Ham. Ham, of course, being the, the son of, of Noah, but it was his son, Mizraim, who went into Egypt and settled there. Now, it's interesting about Israel and Jacob being mentioned, because you would think this is two people. No, it's one. Remember, Jacob was given a name by the angel of the Lord, and the name that he was given was Israel. So why does it use these particular two names? Because it is the fullness of of Jacob and his family and his whole uh, line that uh, actually went into Egypt. And this was was a poetic uh, usage of the language as well, by the way, in in verse 23. But just... uh, for the sake of following through, Genesis 46, verses 6 and 7, tells us about that move. It says, And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into 
Egypt. And so we see the significance then of Israel going into Egypt. This is also placed prophetically in, in not only um, in Israel's life, but also in the life of Messiah. Because as the scripture says, even Messiah would go into Egypt uh, as a child. But uh, we go on. And then there is the, uh, the uh, son Put or Foot. Uh, and that refers to those who settled in the areas of North Africa, specifically in Libya. Uh, many times when you see the name put in the, uh, uh, in the, in the prophets, uh, you see, the usage of it is pointing directly to the, the land that is known as Libya and, and the western North Africa. Uh, again, not, not just staying there, but also settling down into Africa as well. Uh, Libya has been in the news, of course, much in the last few months because of the upheavals of the government in, in Libya, and of course, then of course came the death of, uh, of Gaddafi recently. Um, then, of course, there is Canaan and his descendants that are mentioned. By the way, I, I should have warned you, this is the history lesson for today. Uh, history geography lesson. Uh, there's Canaan and his descendants, the Canaanites who gave his name to the land of Canaan, which we know today as Eretz Israel the land of Israel and its surrounding regions. The sons of Cush, in verse 7, are dealt with next. Uh, Seba migrated to what we call the Sudan, again, in Africa. Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabtecha settled in Arabia, as did the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. And we're going to see this in a couple of slides. I'm just going to show them very quickly to you. In the first slide, if we can get them up. Do we have any slides? There it is. Thank you. This is the general uh, picture of, of the direction of the three sons of, uh, of Noah. You'll notice Japheth up in the uh, top uh, left-hand corner there, which would be heading in the westward direction. Uh, again, the Indo-Europeans were the, was the, the descendants of Japheth. You'll see some of the uh, names that we mentioned uh, last time, Tagarma. Uh, but there's also some that we mentioned today. For example, Ludim is mentioned there. You'll see uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean there where Israel would normally be, there's Canaan. Uh, you'll see Ham down around the Red Sea. Of course, that's Egypt in that vicinity. Uh, you'll see the names Cush along the south, uh, southwestern side of Red Sea, uh, Foot south of Egypt, uh, Sabtaha, Seba, Rama, Cush, there's Ham. Then Shem settled primarily in the area of the uh, Persian Gulf, uh, the Fertile Crescent, as it were. Uh, if you remember, of course, you'll see this when we get in January to Abraham. Abraham came from the Ur of the Chaldees, which is in that particular uh, area. And then, of course, the Lord tells him to leave his home, and then he goes over to Canaan. So that's just a general uh, map. The next one is a little bit more broad in that it opens up a little bit of the picture of, of uh, the directions that they went. You'll notice over in Spain it's called Tarshish. Um, so Europe was, uh, was Japheth and up around the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. You'll see Gomer up there, which was mentioned last time. Tirash and Meshech and, and uh, others in that particular region. Uh, then you see over by the by the Red Sea again, those are the ones that we saw earlier. Okay, that, that was just a quick, quick view of that. I hope that maybe next time I'll, I'll be a little, have an even clearer map in, in the, with directions and all. Okay, I'm going to be talking about some things in chapter 10, verses 13 through 20, but I'm not going to read the names again because I want to show you some mercy. But when we're dealing with the descendants of Ham, not all of these names have been properly traced. Ancient monuments record the name of Heth's ancestors, the Hittites, as Hittai, K-H-I-T-T-A-E, Kittai, from which we get the word Cathay, C-A-T-H-A-Y. Now, if you've ever traveled to the Far East, uh, you may have traveled, as I did in 1989, in a, in a uh, uh, plane that uh, was, uh, uh, the airline was Cathay Pacific. And so Cathay is a word that is used for the Far East uh, in a general sense. Uh, and so it's applied to Far Eastern nations. You can think of China, Korea, uh, Japan, 
as possibly the ones where these, these particular descendants settled. The nine sons of Canaan that are mentioned in verses 18 and 19 were the ancestors of the Canaanite tribes that occupied the promised lands when the Hebrews arrived. And verse 19, by the way, contains the boundaries of the promised land. And then there is mentioned the Sinites. I, I told you I'd talk about the Sinites. Well, many, many Bible names are derived from the Sinites. There is the wilderness of Sin that is mentioned in Exodus 16 and 17. That is not a reference to a wilderness where you go and sin uh, and be abhorrent to God. That's not, it's, it's talking about the Sinites. So it's the wilderness of Sin. Uh, as well as, you've all heard of Mount Sinai. Sinai, actually, is, is the, the pronunciation, and, and that is uh, also uh, where some of these Sinites had, uh, uh, had settled. But uh, Isaiah 49, 12 mentions a people in the Far East. And it says, Behold, and this, this, this is in reference to Christ coming the second time to, to come and rule and reign in Jerusalem. And he's calling all nations to come to Jerusalem. And uh, he says in, it says in Isaiah 49, 12, Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. And that would refer to the far east. So, again, this is how far the, the descendants of Ham went. They went into Africa. They, went in, uh, they, they settled around the, uh, the Middle East but they are seen to have also uh, been a part of the, uh, the, the Far East as well. Now, secular historians also use the designation Sino. I'm going to try to do this fast. I don't want anybody falling asleep here, okay? Because I remember falling asleep in history class, in, in the geography class. All right? I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to move this on here. Uh, the secular historians also use the designation Sino in mentioning what we now know as the Chinese peoples. It is significant that the Chinese people have always been identified by the prefix S-I-N-O, Sino, as in describing the Sino-Soviet border, which is now the Sino-Russian border, the boundary that separates China from Russia. So the name Sin or Sin is often encountered in Chinese names in the form of Xiang and other names. So this, this is that connection then to how far east uh, this, this line went. Okay, history lesson over. Now let's go to the science lesson that we need to have today, because this is important for us too. The question that some would ask would be this, could all of the world's nations really have developed from the three sons of Noah? Could all of the world's nations really have developed from the, from the three sons of Noah? How can you account for the physical differences between peoples if we are really related? Does the Bible not tell us, though, that we all come from the same family? Does the Bible not tell us that we come all the way? I mean, we, we're, we're descendants of Adam. But then after the flood, who do we have? Noah. But still, we, we, we're still, we're still of the same origin, right? Even though maybe we don't want to think we are, we are. <laughs> That's the point of the questions. But yet we're all different. So many distinctions, so many varieties. Don't forget, though, we're all people made in the image of God. Don't forget that. Well, Dr. Henry Morris, who was a creation scientist and a wonderful uh, believer in Jesus Christ, he, he answers these questions in his book, Many Infallible Proofs. Let me just give you a quick quote from what he says. He says, it is known genetically that isolation and inbreeding are required for rapid production of individual varieties from a given species. Assuming that all the many genetic factors for all aspects of man's physical structure were present in Adam at creation, and many of them in the six people from whom the world was to be populated after the flood, being, of course, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. Those are the, the three families from which all of the other families come. He says, then different groups of such characters would soon become more or less permanently established in the individual inbreeding family groups, and soon each would become a distinctive tribe or nation. Now, the conclusion arrived at scientifically would be this. 
He goes on to say, the enforced segregation of mankind into small inbreeding tribal units would generate a rapid development of the distinctive physical characteristics associated with each tribe. And then he says, it is very doubtful that any other explanation is feasible at all. Now, just think that when Adam was created, he was created perfect. He was created perfect, and everything about him, everything inside of him and outside of him, was made by God perfectly. So much so that even after the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, even though Adam knew that he was eventually going to die physically, lived over 900 years. And certainly after that, if we, we, if we go back to, that, uh, to those genealogies and see the timelines of each, each person, the more you moved away from, from Adam, the, the, you know, the, the, the smaller the life became. But what? Noah was 500 years old when, when the Lord calls him. So, so you have to understand here, I mean, even with Noah dying a very, uh, at a very old age, there was still some perfection, as it were, in the makeup that God gave to Adam and passed on in his line, even to Noah. And then Shem, Ham, and Japheth with their wives as they began to procreate and as they began to uh, fill the earth. Built into Adam was all of us. Every one of us, every physical characteristic, every uh, color, every, everything, every uh, bit of stature and structure that we are. To be the varieties that we are and all to be blessed by God. This is what is important about this. The problem is that because of sin... And because all of a sudden we've scattered all over the world and forgot God, guess what else we forgot? We forgot where we came from. And we began to say, I don't like him because of his color. He's not like me. And it was because of the fall that we began to hate one another. And it became more distinctive. And truly... The Judeo-Christian ethic based upon the Word of God is what brings us back to understand how we are to love one another because we all came from the same person. We all came from Adam. And eventually, well, we all came from Noah too. We're all one. And yet God said, but look how varied you are. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we're not all clones? That we're not all robots? That we weren't created in a factory in, in Detroit? You know, I mean, like cars, you know, we're all the same, you know, mass production? Unless you came from Detroit, if, if you did, praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> we all got to come from somewhere, right? <laughs> and I know you're praying for the lions today, but that's another story. Okay. So, but that's, that's the thing. We have to understand, as all of these things, we need to know that. We need to know where we came from. Getting back to the passage that we skipped earlier, one son of Cush, grandson of Ham, is singled out in our text. We all know him as Nimrod. Many have heard of Nimrod. Well, you, should, you all should have because I read it earlier. All right. We all heard of Nimrod. Interesting, we hear a little story about Nimrod here. He settled in that area of Babylon. There, you know, there's reason to believe. There's reason to believe that Nimrod had developed a moral, or as it were, an immoral kinship with his uncle Canaan, who had been the youngest son of Ham and the special recipient of the Noahic curse. You all remember the curse back in chapter 9? You remember that Noah had become... Uh, quite a grower of, of grapes. He, was a, he started a vineyard and, and he made wine. Uh, he probably made wine too well because he got drunk. And, uh, well, the story goes, of course, that he got drunk and he was in his tent and, and uh, his son Ham saw him and saw the nakedness of his father. And, uh, of course, when we're, 
we pick up in verse 24 of Genesis 9, it says, Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Notice he doesn't curse him, he curses Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And of course, we talked about you know, the, the implications of all of the, uh, of the servitude of, of, of the descendants of Canaan to Israel, as well as to the Japheth and all of that. But, but how do we come to this idea about uh, how this, this idea grows of, 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 this, of this resentment because of this curse? Well, well it's quite possible that Cush... Ham's oldest son had resented this curse more and more as the years passed by. Now, by the time Nimrod is born, that resentment may have become so strong that he named his youngest son Nimrod, which means, let us rebel. That's the original name, Nimrod, let us rebel. And the inference is that that Cush would have trained his son Nimrod to be a leading force in a planned and organized rebellion against God's purposes for mankind. And you say, well, how can you say that? Well, let's let's just examine this a little bit. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. It says, and Cush begat Nimrod. And then it says, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. That, That gives us an indication here that Nimrod was being trained. That he had been born with a purpose. And of course, who gives our children their purposes? We bring them up. In some cases, we want them to be just like us. And he began, it says, to be a mighty one in the earth. Whoever thinks of wanting to become the mighty one in the earth. That word began is very significant here. Because it tells us of someone's plan and intent to put him in this position. It told, we're told in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. I know some of you are mighty hunters. Well, maybe not mighty. You go to Walmart, you get your hunting license, and you go, you know, like next month, you'll probably go to the central Texas and go shoot some deer and bring them home for, you know, some meat and all. But I've known some mighty hunters that aren't so mighty. They miss. They come back. Let's go to Walmart for food. Anyway. (laughs) This is not what it's talking about. It's not dealing with that issue. Notice it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. What does that mean? What that means is that he was a mighty hunter in complete opposition to the Lord. He stood before the Lord in the face of God in mockery toward God. This is what it means. And it became a byword. In other words, he became famous. He became like a legend because it says, Hey, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. You remember Muhammad Ali? Flowed like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's how he, he was recognized, you see. How about Nimrod? The mighty hunter before the Lord. But the mighty hunter against the Lord. And notice this. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. We'll stop there. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. (laughs) I I read an article on this section of Genesis 10 where the author calls the descendants of Ham, and I quote, a list of biblical bad guys. When you think about it, read read this list again, and you think, you know what? Most of these guys were bad guys in the Bible. You know, who were, who, were the, who were the ones that were always coming against Israel when, when they came into the land? Amorites, the Hittites, uh, you know, this ite and that ite, the stalagmites, the stalactites, you know, and all of those other ites. You know, they were all coming against, the, you know, the people of God. Well, in this chapter, the baddest of the bad of them all was Nimrod. Here was the founder, listen, he was, here was the founder and the ruler of Babel who led a rebellion against the true and the living God. 
We've already said he was mentioned as a mighty hunter, not because he was good at bringing home wildlife for sustenance, but because he hunted for the souls of men to lead them down the path against God. In fact, the name Babel, its original meaning was the gateway to God. But which God? The gateway to God. But which God? Not the God, not the gateway to the God, to the to the living and true God, to the God of creation. No. Because he was a mighty hunter in the face of God, in opposition to God. Now Babel, the meaning of Babel changes for us as we get into chapter eleven when we do. Because if you ask anybody what does Babel mean, the first thing we'll say is it means confusion. But its original meaning was gateway to God. But it is confusing. We can say that Nimrod actually became the originator of false religions. And I'll talk about that more in chapter 11. But he actually becomes the originator of false religions. And when you think about it, all religions outside of Christ are very confusing. Outside of Christ, there is confusion. Look look at at the various false religions today and how confusing their beliefs are. Maybe you came out of one of these uh, cults or one of these uh, Eastern religions or out of the New Age movement or or even out of the pseudo-Christian cults like Jehovah's Witness or, or Mormonism. Maybe you came out of these things. And when you look back and you think, man, coming to Christ was great, but, you know, I look back and I think, boy, it was confusing. It's incredibly confusing because of the twists and the turns that they might put to the Word of God if they even use the Word of God. Mormons twist the Word of God. Jehovah's Witnesses twist the Word of God. And then on top of that, they have their own books that they consider better than that of the, of the Word of God. So, Christianity, in contrast, is is straightforward. Christianity is very straightforward, and while you might not agree with it, you can easily see the truth. And there is no confusion about it. There really isn't. It's pretty simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Paul says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Christianity is so straightforward. And there's no confusion about it. Paul, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. In fact, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, we read this a lot here, but we're told here that it says, And said Jesus to those Jews who, which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But free from what? You see, the truth sets us free from the lies that we have to encounter every day that are against God and against His Word and against Christ and against Christianity. And keep in mind that we are, you know, when we're looking at chapter 10 here of Genesis, keep in mind that we are only some five generations removed from the flood in our text and look at the wickedness of man. Look at the wickedness of man in the person of of Nimrod. A couple of weeks ago, I took you to the book of Judges because I wanted to show you that it doesn't even take more than a generation to forget God. And we shouldn't be surprised, for the Lord said after the flood of Noah in Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor when Noah offered sacrifices to God, and the Lord said in his heart, 
I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's interesting, but literally what he said was, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. Nothing, nothing surprises God. God knew. God knew all along. That sin nature that we call the flesh continues to rear its ugly head even in the days we're living in, especially the days in which we live. Where when we are told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, I mean, this is also referring to him as a warrior. It was through his ability to fight, for his ability to kill and rule ruthlessly, that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states was consolidated. And when it comes right down to it, Nimrod became the forerunner of Nebuchadnezzar who led the Babylonians with this ruthlessness. And even of Sennacherib of the Assyrians, the same thing. The ruthlessness of these nations to go and overtake other nations. Peter may have thought of Nimrod when describing the tactics of Satan. When we read in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Almost makes you think that Peter had Nimrod in mind as well. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That was the characteristic of this Nimrod, based on what we've read. And since the book of Genesis is a book of first, it is in Nimrod that we find our first world dictator and the first tyrant who set out to build the first empire on the earth, specifically to be against the God of creation. And I find it interesting that the Jewish historian Josephus, 2,000 years ago, wrote that Nimrod led the people away from God. By encouraging them, listen to me, by encouraging them to put their security and happiness in the state or in the government. I won't tell you that again, so I don't want you to miss it. Josephus wrote that Nimrod led the people away from God by encouraging them to put their security and happiness in the state or government. I mean, that is quite a profound statement. And we need to take heed of that, folks. Because you see, I read before the start of this service from Psalm 33, and I believe it's in verse 12, that it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's why we need to pray for this nation. The state isn't going to save us. The state or the government isn't going to save us. It isn't our Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He is Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Isn't it something Gaddafi himself, I was reading something, he used to, he used to like to call himself the King of kings. Look where he is now. Now he knows the King of kings. He knows who he is anyway. Please understand. These are serious things. And what we're seeing here in this passage should help us to see what's important about how we live until the day of Jesus Christ. Nimrod, to some degree, ignored the brotherhood of the human race. When I say that, I'm not talking about the brotherhood of man as, you know, uh, I'm just talking about where we all came from. He ignored that. He forgot his roots and the heritage of the human race. I mentioned it earlier. He forgot that all people have come from one source, one origin, one man, Noah. And eventually, of course, we can all go all the way back to Adam. But most tragic of all, he willfully forgot that Noah was godly. He willfully forgot that Noah was godly, and so he ignored the God of Noah. And the result was catastrophic. He mistreated people. He used people as mere animals to feed his lust for power and pleasure. 
He enslaved them to do his bidding and to build his empire. How like so many persons today who forget the brotherhood of men, who forget the fact that we all come from the same source. We all come from the same place. We can't ignore that anymore. If we believe the word of God, So many misuse and abuse and oppress others in business to build their own little empires uh, in seeking pleasure and seeking money and health and seeking position in seeking fame and in seeking power. But what happens when we come to Jesus? All of that changes. All of that changes. That's not who we are. We come to realize that we were made in the image of God. We were created above the animal kingdom, not from it. In that sense, we're distinct. The very thing that we can understand when we look at the world today is that man without Christ become animals in the way that they hate one another, in the way that they treat one another. But listen to the words of Paul, and I'll close with this today. Romans 12. Are we not to be different from the world? Well, I say we are to be different. Because the Bible tells us we're different. Speaking to the church, speaking to those who have been given the gifts of God, every child of God. Paul exhorts and he says, let love be without dissimulation, which means let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, have a genuine love for one another. Have a sincere love for the brethren, as well as for others. Let your love be without hypocrisy, without a mask. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. I'm going to make a statement I made last night in in, in first service today. You may not like it, but you you still have to love me. But I'm going to make the statement anyway. I'm going to tell you right now, I hate Halloween. I hate it. I didn't like it even as a kid. And and we were talking earlier today and I thought, you know, that was the Lord, I think. It just, you know, what is with the evil thing? What, what, What is with the dead? I mean, God, the Bible says God is the God of life. He's not the God of death. And we shouldn't celebrate it. Can you believe that that, uh, Halloween is second only to Christmas as far as how much people buy, as far as a a holiday as it were? It's not even a holiday. But it's based in evil. It's based in pagan rituals. As a matter of fact, witchcraft comes out of much of what uh, we see here and vice versa actually. But the point of the matter is this. Witches today love Halloween. Why should we love what they love? Or why should we even mess with those things? Paul says, abhor that which is evil and cleave or cling to that which is good. I only want to cleave to God because God alone is good. And Christ alone, what he did was good. That's what we need to teach our children about. Besides, you can buy candy every day for your kids. They don't have to go door to door. This is part of that ritual. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry. If you want to criticize me, that's okay. I love you anyway. I do. And you might say, well, you never had any kids. I don't care. I had you. I'll take care of you all the time. Thank you for loving me. I could go on about that, but I I, I need to close. Because I want us to keep focused on what we are called to be. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. 
or cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. You know what that says? As Christians, we need to be selfless. Others are more important than us. Verse 11, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, we're going to do that tonight. We're going to worship the Lord together. And I hope and pray it's fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. That we do tonight too. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant already in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints. You guys do that all the time. Well, we have so much food because you bring so much in so we can give to those who have nothing. Given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. You know, we're not people to give curses. We're people to give blessings. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we should have none. We should have no deceits, or conceits, I should say. Recompense to, man, to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. If you jump down to verse 21, it says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That is the hallmark of the believer in Jesus Christ. That is what we are to be to this world. That is to be the complete contrast to the spirit of Nimrod and the spirit of Antichrist. It is to have the spirit of Christ and to continue in the love of God. And so, this is what we face every day the evil of this world. But we don't overcome that evil with evil. We overcome it with good. And one day we'll stand before the Lord and He'll say, Come in, my good and faithful servant. For I see Christ in you. The hope of glory. I want Jesus to say that. I want the Lord to say that to every one of you. Enter in, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.